It's Mattress Firm's President's Day Sale. Right now, save up to $600 when you get a king bed at a queen price and a queen for a twin. Like a Serta Perfect Sleeper Queen mattress now just $499.99. Plus, take home a free adjustable base when you spend just $499. Don't wait. Visit mattressfirm.com or a store near you for our best deal of the year. Your budget stretches further at Mattress Firm. Offer valid with qualifying purchase. Restrictions apply. Valid at participating locations only. For offer details, visit mattressfirm.com slash sale. Live from Southern California, this is the Jim Rome Show. Welcome to the Daily Jungle. It is Podcast Tuesday. Buckle up. We have a ton of show and even more content still to crank out. Mitchell Trubisky made his debut for the Bears last night. The Adrian Peterson era in New Orleans is already over. And the Dodgers crushed the Diamondbacks in three straight. We also have three excellent guests, Clemson defensive tackle Christian Wilkins, Penn State head coach James Franklin, and MLB Network and FS1 analyst Tom Verducci. Alvi, we have got some work to do. Go ahead and roll it. A few moments ago, Diana Rossini tweeted, quote, trade. The New Orleans Saints have traded Adrian Peterson to the Arizona Cardinals for a conditional pick per sources. Now, I'll be honest, when I saw that, At first, I thought, that's got to be a joke. No way Adrian Peterson is getting traded in the middle of a season for a conditional pick. There's no way that's real. I mean, it's fake news. That can't be real. But then I remembered that this Adrian Peterson is not that Adrian Peterson. This Adrian Peterson has 81 yards rushing on 27 carries for the entire season. Not only is that not the Adrian Peterson who played for the Minnesota Vikings, that's not the other Adrian Peterson, the one who played for the Bears. I think I'm just going to go ahead and say it. I'm just going to go ahead and say this did not work out the way Peterson or the Saints expected. And it also kind of ends the idea that he wasn't bent about his role in New Orleans. His only highlight in the black and gold was him yelling at Sean Payton on the sideline. Well, that and then trying to claim afterwards that he wasn't yelling at Sean Payton on the sideline, that they were, quote, just communicating. And that he said, quote, one thing I said to him was, let's run this inside zone. And we came out and we ran it, end quote. Right. And the Saints are just communicating with this deal. And they just ran Adrian Peterson out of town. That pretty much could not have gone any worse than it did. And they were smart to wash their hands of it, and now he's gone. 1-800-636-8686. Hey, listen, who am I to say? It's not my legacy. It's his legacy. He can do whatever the hell he wants with it. Hate to see a great player like that bouncing around at the end of his career, though. Chasing something that's not there. But then again, maybe it doesn't matter. I mean, when you think of Jerry Rice, what do you think? Do you think of Jerry Rice in Seattle Seahawk gear? Or do you think of him only as a Niner? Christian Wilkins is my guest. Clemson's developed an amazing reputation for defense and defensive linemen. So what's it mean to you to be a part of that tradition? And then who are some of the guys who showed you the ropes when you first arrived? Um, you know, it's definitely, you know, it's definitely big being a part of this tradition. You know, I personally take a lot of pride in that. Uh, you know, just li- just living up to, you know, what the standard of excellence has been on the defense. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of great guys who come before me who, you know, who've done great things for Clemson and, you know, made it a better place. And I'm just trying to do the same. And, you know, uh, definitely the guys, that, you know, that were here when um, you, when I came in, like uh, Carlos Watkins, uh, Scott Pagano, uh, 
you know, Rod Byers, uh, DJ, DJ Reader, you know, guys that, you know, that kind of really showed me the ropes and told me, you know, that, you, you know, that I have to, you know, basically just the Clemson standard really. And, you know, obviously guys that come before me, just, you know, Grady, Jared, and, you know, Vic Beasley, just seeing what those guys have been able to do. And, you know, it, you know, I just take a lot of pride in my job because I know, uh, you know, that they, they set the bar really high. Christian Wilkins joining us. Now, you and fellow defensive lineman Dexter Lawrence are a nightmare on the field, but you guys are tight off the field. How did the relationship oh, yeah. first start? Like, what did you think when you first met him? Well, I'm just like, who is this massive child? Like, you know, he was <laughs> only like 17 the first time I met him, and he was way bigger than me, uh, just huge, and just a good dude, huh? you know. And I just knew right then that, like, the type of kid he was, the type of person he was, and you know, any program would be lucky to have him because, obviously, his talent speaks for itself. But, you know, he's just a better, even better person as well, you know, and that's why we we're, we're, we have such a great relationship just because we connect in a lot of different ways, um, you know, and have a lot of ways of like. So it's just easy to be, you know, you know, cool with a person like that. And he's just a freak, you know, athlete on the field and everything and do a lot of ridiculous things for a guy his size. Yeah, Christian, everybody talks about your personality, your love for life. And talking to you for five minutes, I can even hear it coming right through the phone. You've said that a lot of that comes from your grandfather who passed away in 2011. Can you tell us who was he and what kind of an impact did he have on your life? Well, he had a great impact on my life. Um, you know, he, you know, he just kind of, you know, taught me to always have a smile and, you know, just be the best and just be a good person, really. Uh, you know, just his personalities, you know, the character traits he had, just loud, outspoken, just, you know, but just loved people, you know, loved his family, loved his life. And, you know, so I just, I kind of took on that personality and just try to do the same and, you know, have to live through as well. Uh, so, you know, that's that's really where I got all my, you know, all my charisma, all my dislove, and you know, all my excitement about life from. Now you're from Massachusetts, and you had lots of offers coming out of high school. But when you went to see Clemson, you wrote yourself a note on your phone that read, "Clemson, no matter what." That was the quote. What was it about Clemson that gave you that feeling? Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And just, uh, you know, I just it was just really a gut feeling. I mean, a lot of people talk about it. You know, there's just just something in these hills at Clemson. You know, and you don't know exactly what it is. You kind of just got to experience it for yourself. But you just know that you just did just a certain type of vibe, a certain type of feeling that you get here that you don't get anywhere else. That you know that you just know it's special. Um, you know, just the people I've met, the sense of community around campus. Uh, you know, the coaches obviously, and everything, and just the and just the culture. And uh, you know the teammates were, you know, my the, my the players were a big thing for me. You know the guys I would be having as teammates. Um, you know that was that was the biggest recruiting tool for me because I want guys that are around me that will challenge me to be my best each and every day on and off the field. And I felt like I had guys just like me who were ambitious, who love the game, who love football, but also strive for greatness. You know, in all areas of their life. You know, no matter what it is, academics, just. Just socially, just you know, just strive for greatness and strive to be the best. So that that was definitely very attractive to me. All right, so you're obviously serious in your approach and your process, but but you have a reputation as a practical joker too. So what was it like when you called Dabo Sweeney and told him that you wanted to commit? How did the start of that call go? Oh well, just because you know I'm just a funny guy or whatever. You know I try to you know always have a good time with everything and. You know, uh, and first off, I called Coach Coach Venables because, you know, he was my primary recruiter and everything. So I called him first time him I wanted to commit, and I did the same thing to him. I just started off on the phone just, you know, going on about how great of a school Clemson was, making it seem like, you know, Clemson was such a great place, but I wanted to go somewhere else. So, uh, you know, I kind of got him going and everything. And then, you know, right before, you know, like that's the last minute, I just said, I'm coming to Clemson. And then he told me to do this. He, said, he told me to call Coach Sweeney and do the exact same thing. <laughs> So uh, 
Coach V was kind of behind it as well. I know I get a lot of credit for the prank for the prank call, but V V gets a lot of credit. Behind. He had just as much to do with it as I did. So. I like it. I like it. Now, yeah. Dabo, <laughs> Dabo's also got another story from a while back where you called him and said that you were going to visit your girlfriend in Colorado and that you were going to elope and step away from football for a while. What do you remember about that call and then how did the coach react to that? Because I know Coach V didn't oh. push you up to that one. Yeah, well, you know, Coach Sweeney, when I did that to him, Coach Sweeney's been around me for over a year and some change, so he kind of knows how I am. He kind of knows what uh, type of guy I am. So, like, he, he when I said that to him, he kind of, like, laughed, but it was like a nervous laugh, like, ha-ha, like, you know, he, like, I know this Christian, but at the back of his mind, you could tell, like, is he, like, you know, he's wondering, like, is he serious? Like, is he really considering this? Like, what's going on? But you know, I just I just hit him with that, and you know, he like this is exactly what a little nervous laugh, like ha ha, like good one, Christian, you got me. But like, no, like seriously, like why are you calling me? You know? <laughs> I gotta tell you something, my man. I think you've got to be an All American and a national champion to get away with stuff like that, and a great dude, right. <laughs> and you are. So finally, what about being a national champion? I mean, when you talk about what it meant, how much Clemson meant to you when you first visited, what's it mean then to be a part of the team to bring a national championship back to that school? Um, it meant a lot, um, you know, just, you know, that's something I dreamed about, you know, since I was a seven, seven eight-year-old chubby kid watching, uh, you know, USC Texas on the, you know, national championship game in the Rose Bowl. Just, you know, you dream of that moment, you know, uh, just watching those games and, you know, like, wow, I really want to play college football. Wow, I really would love to be a national champion. Like, this seems like so much fun, a lot of hard work. It's something I dreamed of, you know, since before. You know, I you know, since forever really, um, and, you know, and and it's just great to finally achieve that. You know, and um, just all the hard work everybody put into it. You know, there's a lot of moving pieces, a lot of a lot of people who you know put in the time and effort to to make that possible. Um, you know, and just putting that blood, that that work in everyday blood, sweat, and tears with your brothers. Um, you know, it just made it that much better. To, you know, to achieve that with, with the guys you love the most, you know, and coming so far away from home, I got really close with my teammates and, you know, uh, it just it was a great fun to look around and see all the guys that I wanted with and, you know, know they had my back all year and I had theirs and just, you know, to reach the reach the pinnacle of college football, you know, that's just, that was just an amazing feeling. And I want to be real about last night's Vikings-Bear game, Bears game. That was not the best football game I've ever seen. In fact, that was far from the best football game I've ever seen. Where to start? Now, I'm not saying there weren't some good things. There was an awesome two-point conversion. There was a legendary duck-duck-goose touchdown celebration. Good things. Now for the not-so-good. Why don't we start with Sam Bradford? Sam Bradford returned after missing the last three games with a knee injury. Frankly, I don't know what the hell that guy was doing on the field. I mean, not Bradford's not exactly Steve Young at the best of times. And last night was not the best of times. He was a statue. It didn't feel like he could step into any of his passes. He certainly could not run from any defenders. He was sacked four times, and all four times, it was when the Bears sent four or fewer rushers. And it's not like the Vikings offense looked explosive with him when he was in there. But even the jacked-up knee does not explain what happened on this play. Third and 15 from the five. Snap back, Bradford to throw from his own end zone. Has time. Stepping there up. There he goes. Now he's hit from behind. And set for the safety. Leonard Floyd comes off his man and brings down Bradford. Down he goes. And a 2-0 Bears lead. Bears radio. Bradford. I mean, could he have hold on, held on to that football any longer? It's like he was waiting, just waiting for the Bears to hit him. And they did. 
And that was the worst safety since Lions legend Dan Orlovsky ran out of the back of the end zone. And it didn't get any better from there. One awkward sack after another. Like the one where Akeem Hicks got an arm on him, didn't wrap up on him, and Bradford still went down. Or the final one where his center backed into him and Bradford could not get out of the way and fell over. It got so bad that RG3 jumped on Twitter and tried to stop the fight himself. Quote, got to get Bradford out for his own safety. Trust me, I know the feeling. No pressure, no diamonds. You're not going to be honest. That might have been my favorite moment of the entire night, honestly. I mean, what an amazing tweet on so many levels. Not the last of which that, of course, RG3 managed to somehow make Sam Bradford's knee and lack of mobility about RG3. Only that guy could do that. But the thing is, he was right. Bradford did not belong on the field. I respect the effort and the grit and the desire to play, but he looked like somebody's granddad in a football jersey last night. It's no wonder that things got better when Case Keenum came in. And can I repeat that? Things got better when Case Keenum came in. And then you've got the other big quarterback story last night, the debut of Mitchell Trubisky. And I'd have to say it went about as well as you could hope for a rookie quarterback making his first start for a team that's about to fall to 1-4. and four. Trubisky was 12-25, 128 yards, a touchdown, a fumble, and one horrible pick. But he also did show flashes of athleticism and mobility and arm strength. Like on this touchdown to Zach Miller. Snap Trubisky, bootlegging near side. Eyes downfield, going to throw it into the end zone. Passes tip and oh! caught for the touchdown. Zach Miller, <laughs> middle of the end zone. Touchdown! Touchdown Bears! 20 yards, Mitchell Trubisky to Zach Miller on the tip by Anderson Deo. The first NFL touchdown for Mitchell Trubisky, the number two pick in the NFL draft. It was nice. It was nice. But nothing compared to the game-tying two-point conversion. I mean, that, frankly, aside, I mean, two-point conversions aside, that was one of the coolest things I've ever seen. Trubisky going for two off his right hip is Howard. There's the snap and the spin, and it's a fake. And Trubisky will walk in on the bootleg on the near side over the tackle. Nobody around for the Vikings. Touchdown, and we are tied. Rather, uh, two points, and we are tied at 17. A three-man weave. For a two-point conversion. Thanks to Westwood One for that. Mike Glennon is not running that play. Not ever. But then again, Mike Glennon probably would not even throw this interception with just over two minutes left. Here we go. First and 10 from the 10 in the game tied at 17. Trubisky goes out of the shotgun. The rookie from North Carolina takes the snap. Looking over the center of the field. Sees nothing. Runs out to the right. Passes. Intercepted, intercepted by Harry the Hitman. And he spins away from Trey McBride. And he dives down at the 29. Uh-oh. What a backbreaker. To quote a legendary announcer, why do you even ponder passing? Why do you even ponder passing? What a terrible decision. But that's a rookie making his first start. And despite plays like that, Bears head coach John Fox could not have been feeling any better about his young quarterback than he was after the game. I mean, he's got what it takes. You know, there's no doubt in my mind. You know, um, and like I said, it was for a first game. You know, I go back to, you know, watching guys like, you know, Montana in their first game. You know, so it's I've, I've seen a few of them. Um, 
I'm not making comparisons at this point, but he's going to do nothing but get better. John Elway didn't want any of that. Come on, John. You did not just say that. That's a bit much. You can't drop Joe Montana's name when talking about a rookie quarterback and then say you're not making a comparison. Hey, listen, he had his moments. He was not a complete disaster. He looked like a rookie playing on a bad team. And because they're bad, it feels like any glimmer of hope is something to latch onto and get excited about. I get that. He did more to help that team than a busted-up Sam Bradford did. But what do you say maybe, maybe you give it a little bit of time before you start cranking up the hype machine? The history of the NFL is littered with guys who showed flashes in their debut and then never did anything ever again. And whatever you do, and John Fox, of all people, should know this, whatever you do, keep Joe Montana's name out your mouth when talking about Mitchell Trubisky. How do you do that to that guy? Penn State head coach James Franklin. Jim, I almost think you're messing with me. You know, uh, Christian Wilkins, we recruited the heck out of him at Penn State. Came down to us in Clemson. I'm good friends with Dabo, and every time I see him, he brings up how he, how he got him and we didn't and what a great player he is for us. So I almost feel like you're kind of messing with me right now. You and Dabo are messing with That's funny. Christian Wilkins. That's great. That's really funny. I appreciate you saying that because you know what's really funny about that too is Christian Wilkins, when he tells the story that he kind of messed with Dabo initially when he said, hey, you know, Coach, there's a lot to like about Clemson. I really like this place, but – and Dabo was saying, but, but what, but what? And I don't know what school he was talking about. Was he talking about you with that but, with that deke? I don't know. He may have been. We basically came down to us and them. We recruited the heck out of him. I remember him came to our barbecue this summer and just casually at like 315 pounds, he did a round off back flip like it was nothing, like like with ease. And all of our coaches were just looking around like crazy. So, yeah, I, I feel like I feel like you and Dabo are playing a trick. I, all the I'm way. not. I'm not. I'd love to take credit for that. That'd be awesome. But that's not what I'm doing. But I can appreciate it for sure. James Franklin joining us. All right. So you go on the road. You beat Northwestern 31 to seven. You're six and zero. You're at the halfway point of the season, and you've got a bye week this week. How would you describe where your team is right now? Yeah, I'm pleased with where we're at. You know, obviously there's there's high expectations here and everybody's excited and there's a buzz and all that type of stuff. But, you know, what I'm excited about is I think we're playing really good complementary football. You know, we're we're playing well on offense. You know, we're playing well on defense and we're playing well on special teams. And, you know, I've been doing this a long time. I've been doing this 23 years at every level, including the NFL. And I don't know if I've ever been anywhere where all three you know, sides of the ball were all playing at such a high level. Usually, you can have a really good season if two of the three are playing at a high level, special teams and offense or special teams and defense, you know. Um, but right now, all three phases are playing at a really high level, and our kids are playing with a lot of confidence. And as you know, Jim, a confident team is, is a dangerous team. And we're going to need it because we're going into a tough stretch right now. Penn State head coach James Franklin joining us. You know, I want to talk to you about Saquon Barkley in a minute, but let's stay on the defense for a second. It didn't end necessarily the, the way you had hoped it would end last season in the Rose Bowl, but Sharif Miller said, quote, that USC loss motivated us the whole offseason to get back where we were at last year and do better things this year. So did you notice more intensity and focus from the defense in the offseason, and do you see it paying off now? Yeah, I think, you know, I think whenever your season ends like that, and, you know, in college football, there's only one, you know, team at the end of the season that's truly happy. 
and everybody else ends in some type of disappointment. And, you know, I, I think, you know, to be honest, I think that, that game probably had something to do with it. But I think more than anything, I mean, you know, we were one of the youngest teams in the country last last year, like the fifth youngest team in the country. And so we had a bunch of guys back that have won a lot of games, have gained a lot of experience and confidence. So I think it's, you know, it's as much as that as anything. We just got a bunch of guys back that – understand what they have to do to be successful at this level and, and for us to be successful as a, as a team. You know, it's going to get to that point anyway. I mean, that was a young, young team. And with that sixth win on Saturday, you're already bowl eligible. Now, in previous years, being bowl eligible might have been considered a big deal. But when you're coming off a Big Ten title, I know you've got much bigger plans than that. So four years into your time at Penn State, has it gone the way you expected or maybe are you running a little bit ahead of schedule? Well, Jim, I mean, think about it. Think about, you know, what you were talking about five years ago when it came to Penn State. You know, who who would ever thought that, you know, we went to three straight bowl games and won a Big Ten championship and this year are ranked number three in the country. So I'm really proud. I'm really proud of what we've accomplished. Are you still there, Jim? I am. Are you still there, Coach? Yeah, I'm sorry. I, no, I'm you're sorry, good. I hear your phone. Yeah, you're um, right. I, I'm really proud of what we've accomplished, but we've still got a long ways to go in a lot of different areas, and um, you know, we're making tremendous progress. You know, we're talking about the defense, and I want to ask you about one more guy, Shaka Tony. He had two sacks and a forced fumble on Saturday. This is a guy who some people thought maybe might be too small to play defensive end in the Big Ten, yet he's out there causing serious problems. What did you see in him that gave you the confidence that he could be a force in that conference? Well, actually, he committed to us originally as a, as outside linebacker. You know, we we took him as a projection. He's a high school defensive end that we were projecting to be a linebacker. And then after he committed to us, he kind of changed his mind and said, "Hey, I I prefer to play DN. Will you give me a shot there?" So we said, "Yeah." He was extremely disruptive on on the scout team as a true freshman. Um, so quick, so fast. You know, first two steps up the field before the offensive lineman has taken one. And, you know, we knew, you know, if we, if we were going to go this route and he was going to play DN, that early on in his career, he'd have to be a situational guy, you know, um, a third down specialist, kind of like you see in the NFL. Or, um, you know, if you're playing a spread team, it was a predominant pass team and you could get away with using them in a, in a, in a larger role. But there's no doubt that we thought that he could be disruptive um, and, and be a kind of a change of pace guy. And I think what's going to happen as the season continues to grow and his career continues to to um, grow, he's going to just be you know a bigger, bigger impact player. Penn State head coach James Franklin joining us for a few more moments. And then we get to Saquon Barkley. And everybody in the conference has tried to figure out a way to stop him or slow him down, yet he still has more than 1,000 yards from scrimmage in the first six games. I mean, I've got so many questions about him. But let me start with this. How do you explain what this guy's able to do on the field? Well, you know, I think we've all seen guys that have one or two really fantastic traits that, that excite you, either really fast or really big or really strong or whatever it may be. You know, and if you were the way I describe them, if you were making a Frankenstein running back and you listed out all the attributes and all the traits that you were looking for, he's got all of them. And I've been doing this for a long time, and I've never seen a back that can beat you with his size. He's 230 pounds. He can beat you with his speed, his quickness. Um, he's intelligent. He's thrown a touchdown pass. He's returned a kickoff, you know, for a touchdown. Um, you know, we're using him a lot in the passing game right now because people are overloading the box and saying, you know, we're not going to allow Saquon Barkley to, ru- to rush for 300 yards on us. 
Um, so, you know, we're able to use them in a lot of different ways. And we've all seen really good backs, but they weren't good receivers or really good backs, but, you know, they couldn't, you know, pick up the tough yards or whatever it is. And this guy just does so many things well, which makes him so difficult to defend. So everybody is looking to stop him, load up the box, and you know that going in. I mean, Northwestern tried the same thing, yet he still manages to break loose for a 53-yard touchdown run in the second half. I mean, do you go into every game thinking that no matter what the opponent does, it's only a matter of time before he makes a game-changing play? Yeah, I, I think that's accurate. But but I will also say this: you know, we're not an offense like you know, like some of the, like Stanford, for example, where we're just going to line up and 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 hammer people. You know, we're a spread spread offense so we're running a lot of rpos and if people overload the box you know we're going to throw it you know so there's been multiple games where the first two series of the game he never touched a ball you know 14 15 plays into the game and he hasn't touched a ball because we're throwing it on the perimeter so um yeah but but you just know at some point he's going to do something and and to me that's why he's the best player in college football because he's going to have two or three plays a game that just leave you with your mouth wide open like i've never seen that before you know, and to your point, Trace McSorley took advantage of that. He completed a school record, 15 straight passes at one point. So I know you had to be happy about that. But then back to the original point, you said that people, if they're looking for three yards in a cloud of dust offense, that's not the offense for you. So how would you describe the offense, and then how different is the speed and talent level from when you first arrived? Yeah, dramatically. You know, I think you see that speed on our offense. You see that speed on our defense. I think you see the speed on our special teams. You know, you look at the Big Ten championship game. You look at the USC game. That's where we're difficult. So if you're going to commit so many people to stopping Saquon Barkley, which is everybody's plan going into the game, then we got Mike Kosicki at tight end that can beat you vertically. We got wide receivers. I could name five that could beat you vertically. And that's, that's where we're challenging is we have a lot of weapons and we got a quarterback that's back there that can beat you with his legs. He can beat you with his arm. He can beat you with his mind. And you know, that's where we're a difficult, you know, we're a difficult matchup, you know, when it comes to defense. The Dodgers beat the Diamondbacks. They finish off three game sweep. And to me, it wasn't just about advancing. That was about exercising, as in exercising the demons of late August and September. The Diamondbacks owned the Dodgers then, swept them in back-to-back series. And if you had given any truth serum to Dave Roberts and his crew, I'm guessing Arizona was the last team they wanted to see in the NLDS. But that's who they got, and that's who they wrecked. They went right through them. You Darvish did exactly what he was brought to L.A. to do. Win big games, five innings, two hits. One run, seven strikeouts. Allowed just a bunt single and a solo shot. At one point, he retired 13 straight before he ultimately turned it over to the bullpen to finish it off. Darvish was removed after hitting Chris Walker in the bottom of the sixth, and it almost felt like a quick hook. In fact, a lot of starting pitchers in Darvish's position would have been bent about being lifted so early after being so dominant, but he said all the right things. Quote, If I was the manager, I would do the same thing. Use all the bullpen options because we have an off day tomorrow and the day after tomorrow. So as happy as Dodger fans had to be about Darvish dominating, you know they were even happier about the Dodger hitters taking care of business against Zach Granke. Or to quote I. Ray Craig, that mercenary, Zach Granke. Chris Taylor led off the game with a double. He made his way around a score that gave L.A. a 1-0 lead. Then the Dodgers went to work on Granke. And by going to work, I mean they waited him out. 
got him up to 54 pitches in the first two innings, worked him for five walks in five innings, got to 100 pitches by the end of the fifth. But it wasn't all patience. They were up there to swing the bat, too. They had power, like this, from Cody Bellinger in the fifth. Old disco ball flavored to it. And Bellinger with a fly ball, well hit to left field. It's on its way, and it's gone! A home run! Cody Bellinger goes the other way. Hadn't hit a home run in ten games, but this one has just given the Dodgers a two-to-nothing lead. And then, this from Austin Barnes that ended that mercenary Granky's night in the sixth. He is three for six in the division series, and he drills one to deep left field. That one's on its way, and it's gone! A home run! Austin Barnes answers the home run by Descalso with one of his own. And the Dodgers lead three to one. And the only thing better than beating that mercenary Granky for L.A. fans was the fact that the police were guarding the Diamondbacks' outfield pool to prevent the Dodgers from cannonballing into it. But they weren't going to. Not this time. This group is not the group that partied in that pool a few years back. This group expects to be here. Kenley Jansen put it another way. Quote, we know how good we are. We trust in every single one of these guys. End quote. I'm not saying that they're necessarily back to being the Dodger team that won 43 of 50. But they sure as hell aren't the team that lost 16 of 17. That team does not come into this series and steamroll the Diamondbacks in three straight. Arizona was the obstacle, and the obstacle is the way. And now they've gotten past them. Now that they've beaten up on the bully, and they did it so easily, it's got to give them a huge lift going into the NLCS. The Dodgers have gone from not wanting to see the Diamondbacks again to being the team that you don't want to see, to being the team to beat once again. And they are that. So where are all you Dodger haters now? Seriously, Dodger hater, how you living? Seriously, I'd love to know. Because this summer you were not shy about coming around with a calendar in one hand and a history book in the other. Popping off that August is not October, and that the Dodgers were primed for another all-time choke job, and that the Snakes would catch them in the postseason and finish them before they even got started. Yeah, so much for that with that three-game sweep. Dear Jim, we show them, yours, Arizona pool guys, waving their pool skimmers at the Dodgers. War pool skimmers... Just being long butterfly nets. Unwar my pool guy flirting with my wife as I type this at work right now. Pete and Carlsbad, bro, you better hope that's all he's doing. Pool guy nation. It's one of my favorite nations. A lot of pool guys who listen to the program because whenever pool guy nation comes up, they come out in force. And that whole thing about that, you know, kind of that that legend or that myth about the pool guys who flirt with the wives who are at home, there's no myth about that. That's true, apparently. At least in some cases. But back to the Dodgers and the Diamondbacks. Mostly back to Dodger hater. Yeah, so much for that, right? At least this time, they didn't celebrate by kicking it in the pool. Of course, there was a cop watching over the pool on a horse. So I guess you avoided the ultimate humiliation. So the D-backs had that going for them, which is nice, but still not nearly enough for the Dodger haters that are now wailing on about how the NLDS is not the World Series. Good one, hater. 
sick script you're running there. I mean, do you just erase the very last part and write something new every step of the way? August is in October. Yeah, well, the NLDS isn't the World Series. Yeah, well, the NLCS isn't the World Series. Yeah, well, going to the World Series is not winning the World Series. Yeah, well, winning a World Series is not enough for a team with that kind of payroll. I mean, all you do is erase that last line and just scratch over it and put something new in there. It'll never end. And that's why this is like a really lame battle for me to even entertain. Again, truth is, I might be an L.A. native, but I have no dog in this fight either. I've got no dog in any fight. I don't care. I never care who wins. I only want something to talk about. But I'll tell you what I do have. I've got a pretty clear memory of a lot of Dodger haters running their mouths around these parts. And now I'm curious, what is your take right now? Because that was a straight wax job, a beatdown, three straight wins over a team that owned them. And while the only momentum in baseball is your next day starting pitcher, I don't think the Dodgers are too afraid of either the Cubs or the Nats. Not when your next day starters are Clayton Kershaw and you Darvish. So here's what I'm getting at, Dodger haters. I own my misses all the time. No one could ever say that I'm not accountable. And if I ever do miss on an NHL prediction, I'll be the first one to cop to that. So now I'm wondering if Dodger hater is going to do the same. Or if they'll start thumbing out tweets and emails that the road ends for L.A., in Chicago, or the district. I'm pretty sure I know how that's going to go. Because Dodger haters just chucked their snakes gear and now they're ready to throw on a Cubs or Nats gamer as soon as that series wraps up. Dodger hater might be full of venom and vitriol and anger, but give them this. At least they're consistent. Consistently ignorant. Tom Verducci is my guest. Cleveland Tom had a chance to close out the Yanks last night, but instead they lose 7-3. to And in the process, Tom, they become the fourth team in MLB history to allow at least six unearned runs in a closeout game. What happened to the Indians last night? Well, Jim, I actually think a couple of those errors were absolutely smoked, and they could have gone either way. But I didn't just—I didn't like the way they went about it. I didn't like the idea of Trevor Bauer pitching on short rest. Uh, they struck out 14 times. They, they continue to be anxious at the plate. They're getting themselves out a lot on pitches out of the zone. Um, they looked uncomfortable in New York. It's not to say that they were scared or nervous, but. Closing out a series with this team, man, you saw last year in the World Series, is not easy. And I like what Jason Kittner said after the game, that they are much more comfortable in the routine, at home, in front of their fans. Uh, you know, I think they've been, over the course of 162, one of the best teams in baseball, but they did not look like that in New York. I think you're right. Tom Verducci joining us. Tom, go back to your point about Trevor Bauer pitching on short rest. I mean, when you get to the postseason, there's always a lot of discussion about pitching on short rest. But when you really look at it, how often is it a good idea to send somebody out there on short rest? Well, I think it's a terrible idea. Uh, you know, the night before you had Frank Kona and Bauer talking about, oh, this guy's got a rubber arm. You know, he's made to pitch on short rest. Well, he's now made three starts on short rest and pitched a total of nine innings. Uh, you know, these days, Jim, actually, more pitchers make starts with five days of rest than four days of rest. You know, the new normal is pitching on the sixth day. Hmm. But now when you're shortening guys up to the fourth day with three days of rest, 
they're really out of their element. But let's make no mistake here. This is all about putting all the chips on Corey Kluber in Game 5 on full rest. That's exactly how they set up their rotation. They made some compromises because of it. Give Bauer credit. He pitched well in Game 1. Kluber went to the staff and he said, listen, second start, I want to be on my fifth day. You know, I don't want to shorten up. He pitched on short rest in game seven of the World Series last year. It wasn't very good. So, Francona, rightly so, you got to take care of your ace. And I think there's no better pitcher right now than Corey Kluber. And this is what they're doing. They're saying everything is riding on game five at home, Corey Kluber on normal rest. Tom Verducci, my guest. So, Tom, bottom line that he was knocked around in game two. What do you think he'll look like in game five? I think he'll be sharp, Jim. I, I do. Listen, the, the Indians, the entire second half of the season, have not lost two straight Corey Kluber starts. Uh, yeah, I tell you, honestly, before this postseason started, if you could give me one pitcher to win one game, I would take Corey Kluber. And I would still take him, even though his command was lousy. In game two against the Yankees, no doubt about it. It happens. People, you know, even the best of them have bad days. It was a bad day for him. I would be shocked if he goes out there and has another bad day. I think it's going to be a low-scoring game, and I think Kluber will pitch well. Tom Verducci, my guest. Now, Tom, you're going to be a part of the telecast of Game 5 tomorrow night. One thought about the Yankees. After they lost Game 2 when they blew that 8-3 lead and had the controversy of whether Joe Girardi should have challenged that hit-by-pitch, it seemed like New York was in big trouble. So how do you make or what do you make of the way they've responded to come back and win the next two? You know, I think the home crowd really helped them. You know, a younger team, you saw then the way they came back down 3 nothing in the wild card game. They've now played three winner-go-home games at home, and they've won them all. And, you know, I like the vibe, the way they go about it. They play with a lot of energy. The crowd, the stadium, I think, have actually been the best I've seen since they opened the new joint. And I think they've fed off that. Um, you know, I've been saying all year, and it's true in the postseason, too, the game now is about so much about home runs and relief pitching, right? The old days, we used to say the postseason was about small ball, you know, move the guy over, bunt, get the guy in. Those are the old days, Jim. They're over with. You need to hit home runs, and you need strikeout relief pitchers to win in October now. And when you look at the way the Yankees are built, they're built entirely on relief pitching and home runs. They just change the game quickly in so many different spots in the lineup, especially at home. Uh, you know, let's see if Kluber can keep them in the yard the way Bauer did in game one. But I think that's why they're so tough, because they can take you out almost any spot in the lineup. Guys, that's true, Tom. It's like it's so different now. When you talk about the way it was in the old days, we're not talking about that long ago, right? We're talking about 10 years ago, 15 years ago. And now, to your point, this change is about power hitting. It's about power pitching in the bullpen. So if that's what it is, and that's what it's about, when you look at the teams that are still alive in the postseason, and you mentioned the Yankees, who's got the roster that best fits the way that postseason baseball is played right now? Well, I think a lot of it, too, to be honest with you, this is just my opinion, has a lot to do with the baseball. It was really only three years ago, four years ago, this was a pitching-dominant game. And then the second half of the 2015 season, the ball just started flying. And when you look at the percentage of fly balls now that's become home runs, it's increased a lot. I mean, we've never seen something like this where it happened this dramatically, this abruptly the way that we've seen fly balls. And I, I know we've talked a lot, and I've talked about this, hitters trying to hit the ball in the air more. Well, yeah, they're trying to hit the ball in the air more because there's less drag on the baseball, and those things are flying. 
So, you know, I don't see it changing. Now I think you're seeing a generation of hitters who come in who don't care about striking out 150 times, and they realize that to be damaged, you do hit the ball in the air, and you will get rewarded even if you don't quite catch it right. So I almost get the sense watching these games that you're defending the home run. You know, it's very rare when you see those four-hit, five-hit rallies. I mean, the Yankees had one last night with the help of some errors. Um, but, you know, the game can change at any time on the home run. Yes, I think you're right, Tom. It's obviously – it's about the baseball, but it's about also elevating the ball. You're going to be rewarded if you hit the ball in the air. But physically, what changed with the baseball? How is the ball itself different? Well, it's interesting. I'll just go by what pitchers tell me and, and pitching coaches. And I, I granted those guys are going to be biased. But they do have the actual baseball in their hand all the time. So if you can blindfold them, they can tell you what the difference is. And what they keep saying is that the ball is just tighter. I mean, you can say, and I know MLB has, has carved those things up and examined them, it's the same components. It's just wound tighter to the point where the seams are a little bit lower. So that if you have lower seams, you're going to have less drag on the baseball, which means when the ball is hit in the air, it's going to carry farther. I don't think it's a dramatic change, Jim, but I do think any change to the height of the scenes of the baseball, any even if it's 2%, is going to show up in more home runs because it's going to be even that less drag is going to affect the flight of the baseball. The hippie lettuce, not just bud. First, though, I promised you phone calls, so let's get them in. Northern California, Paul. It's good to have you, Paul. What's up? What's up, Rome? How's it going? Good, Paul. How about you? Good. Uh, before I get into my uh, take, just got a thoughts and prayers out to uh, my fellow brethren in Northern California dealing with uh, the wildfires. All right. So Jerry Jones is a disgusting man. You know, he's a hypocrite because he claims to be you know, for the Constitution, for everything that's American. He's got principles, right? Okay. What's principled about signing people who commit domestic violence against women? And how about, you know, cheating on your wife, allegedly, by going on a bus with strippers? But that's about as alleged as that dude from the Dolphins, you know, starting uh, Coke. Anyway, unwar, creepy 70-year-old men who abuse, sex, uh, sexually abuse women, young women, like Trump, Harvey Weinstein, and, uh, and, uh... No. You don't like that call. I don't like that call. Not a very good call. Hey, bro, you know what? You just go ahead and keep... Harvey Weinstein, out your mouth. Harvey Weinstein. Clones, thank you for listening, and be sure to check out Episode 7 of the Jim Rome Podcast, dropping today with TMZ founder Harvey Levin. We had an amazing conversation. Spread the word. Hit subscribe. Trust the podcast. See you next time. I'm out. Harvey Weinstein. Security threats are everywhere. But with Xfinity XFi, you're notified of threats to your in-home Wi-Fi network, so all your connected devices are protected. That's simple, easy, awesome. Switch to Xfinity today and get a great offer. You'll get the best in-home Wi-Fi experience with Xfinity XFi. Plus, you'll get advanced security free with the XFi Gateway. That's a $72 value per year. No other provider offers this. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today. Restrictions apply.